Our first uh, portion of God's Word read, actually our second, comes from the book of Proverbs. Chapter 10, verses 29 through 32. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. This is God's word. Would you now join me uh, for a prayer uh, for illumination before we now turn our attention to uh, our sermon for this evening. Let's pray. God of the dawn and God of the lightning, God of the full bright sun, you are the God of the colored northern lights. Grant us your Holy Spirit, the comforter that Christ has promised. Grant that through the hearing of your word, we might see the radiance of the transfigured Christ until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. And now I ask that you'd please uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 90, Psalm chapter 90. This is, uh, many of you know, this. the Psalms are broken down into two, five books. And Psalm 90 uh, is, begins the fourth book of the Psalter. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades 
and withers. We are brought, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. Think back to summer of 2020. I know, we'd rather forget it. COVID in full bloom, George Floyd, and then there were the statues, right? Statues. Who could have predicted that statues in the United States would be a, become a hot-button issue, fraught with deeply rooted opinions and tension? And so thinking about that summer, about the statues, to take them down or not, for a variety of, of reasons and opinions that people had, got me thinking about them. And specifically, here's, here's what I've wondered uh, about statues in general, ones particularly that have been up for quite some time. I wonder when they were initially crafted and mounted in a particular space, was it the assumption of the artist that it would be forever? Or at least in earthly terms, forever, right? And if so, how unthinkable, at least from the artist's viewpoint, that many statues would then be, maybe including their own, would become toppled or removed. This, I'm not wading into viewpoints and politics behind that. I'm just stating a fact that somebody designed and crafted and made and erected the statues. That's all that I'm talking about. And it's a visible reminder that fixtures once considered a permanent part of our landscape 
are so often fleeting. And wherever you might be on the spectrum of cancel culture, we all can experience a visceral reaction to seeing another statue topple, or even a street, or the name of a famous lake being renamed. And I wonder, why is that? Why? Why do we care? I think because on some level it taps into our innate longing for rootedness, for a sense of permanence. And so when something changes so drastically like that, something that we've been so familiar with for years and years and years, maybe not just you, maybe your parents or your grandparents, could be the even uh, woven into the fabric of, of the identity of a city, for good or for ill. They remind us of life's fragility. And they often, against our best intentions, we cannot escape this simple fact. Life is brutally short. And things that seemingly have permanence, they usually end up being removed or are even replaceable, maybe even irrelevant, forgotten. Psalm 90 is a psalm of lament mixed with hope and certainty, written by Moses. It also illustrates fragility. But instead of statues, our lives. Beyond fragile, it shows how fleeting our lives really are. T.S. Eliot's poem, The Hollow Man, famously and painfully concludes thus. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Is Elliot right? Are we resigned to lives of fleeting futility? Or can we rise above it? Does any of it, right, this stuff of life, even matter? Well, tonight we're going to consider what Psalm 90 says about our yearning for permanence, even our yearning, our yearning for meaning. And we're going to do it in, in three ways. By considering God's foreverness, our fleetingness, and God's favor. Okay, we're going to take them in that order. Let's move on to our first point, which is God's foreverness. Look with me at verses 1 through 6. You could also... Uh, say his eternality. He has no beginning and no end. He's always existed. He always will exist. Moses says as much at the end of verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One of the primary attributes of God, he's contrasted creating uh, move, immovable things, right? And that's what Moses is doing such as the mountains or the world that he mentions earlier. 
Moses' emphasis on God's eternality is not just a point of high doctrine on which he just hangs his hat. Instead, this is a truth about God's very being of which he and the nation of Israel, which Moses here is representing, find great comfort. Look with me at the Psalms beginning in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now at this point, the depth and richness of why Moses emphasized God's foreverness aren't apparent. It's, it's as if Moses is simply stating fact. You might even consider it a sort of statement of faith. God, you are eternal. Generation upon generation finds their rest, their protection, their dwelling place in you. So far, so good. Until we hit verse 3. Because in stark contrast to God's foreverness, this brings us to our second point, our fleetingness. And here he shifts our attention from God's eternality to our human condition. A condition that's as jarring as it is sobering. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This return of which he writes, of which he sings, both in imagery and language, echoes Genesis 3. There, the Lord, of course, pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve as a consequence for their disobedience in the garden for eating the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And before this sad episode plunged humanity to the fall of sin and rebellion, it wasn't meant to be this way, right? We know those of us who've been apart growing up in the church, elementary, I understand. We weren't meant to be this way. Before the fall, we were meant to live forever. And as if to further distinguish ourselves from God, Moses again focuses our gaze upon God's foreverness. Because while we are bound by time, marked by seasons, day, night, the rotation of our world around the sun once a year, how vastly different with the Lord. Right? Think about, for those of you who are older or even younger, look at the past school year. I'm trusting, children, you're done with the school year, and if you're not, I hope you have the stamina to finish well. But you look back at the past year, look back at a decade ago. On the one hand, it seems like yesterday. On the one hand, it seems like a long time ago. Three years, summers ago, seems like a long time ago. How so different from God where he isn't bound by time. Moses writes in verse 4, A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. Indeed, God isn't only not bound by time. In terms of its effect or impact, he treats it as seemingly irrelevant. Verse 5, You sweep them, them being the years, Away as with the feather, like a dream, like grass renewed in the morning, only to wither in the evening. Summer's in full swing now here in Minnesota. Many of us are doing a lot of yard work. Whatever our gardening expertise, or in my case, lack thereof, one thing most of us still do is mow the lawn. Well, here's a challenge that I've got for all of you as we, we, we begin the summer of 2023. Whenever, for the rest of the summer, whenever you mow the lawn, I want you to think on God's eternality. 
God's foreverness. And alongside that, the brevity of your life. Think about Psalm 90, verses 5 and 6. A thousand years seem like such a long time, but it's like you mowing the grass. It's, it's over just like that. Here today, gone tomorrow, but not so with the Lord. Tend your lawn, dwell on the Lord and his foreverness and our fleetiness in contrast to grass. Now, as we think about God's foreverness, our fleetingness, here's an important question. Why? Why does it have to be this way? Moses goes on to explain in greater detail. In essence, because we are sinners, sinners who sin. As one confession of faith succinctly says, sinners in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, that is sins of commission, and by what we've left undone, sins of omission. And so we all fail to glorify the Lord as we ought in Moses, tells us God's right response. Contrast to what popular culture might think, God does not look the other way, but nor is he immediately compassionate and forgiving toward us. No, instead his response is wholly in line with one who is perfectly holy, just, righteous, and sinless. And it's an attribute of God that the church, let alone popular culture, often does not feel comfortable dwelling on, and that's God's anger. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 in particular, we're brought to it, end by your anger and by your wrath, we are consumed. Now, why is that? Verse 8, our iniquities, our sins are before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And Moses repeats these words. He's emphasizing God's anger and his wrath, bringing in once again life's brevity in verses 9 and 10. He says, our years end like a sigh. And instead of living forever, our years have a fixed end, averaging 70 or 80 years. The Apostle Paul reiterated that the result of God's anger over our sin is met with literal death. In Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages, what we earn for our sin is indeed death. Now let's just pause here and ask who among us hasn't felt the heavy, visceral sigh of life? Maybe you're feeling it today. Even for most of us whose later years are farther, likely far off, children, younger people, we all feel it, don't we? If you're a lot younger, I don't want to be a wet blanket, but give it some time. Life, even as a follower of Jesus, while good, wonderfully good, is also incredibly challenging. It's intermingled with what the Puritans called losses and crosses, and Jesus knew this all too well. Experienced it as one who was both fully human, fully divine, 
telling us in John 16 that we will have troubles in this world, yet to take comfort, to be of good cheer, since he has overcome the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I fear many of us more readily identify with the troubles that he, of which he speaks and less of the good cheer. So far here, what is Moses' response to this problem? We'd be mistaken to read verses 7 through 11 as a complaint or even to navel gaze. I said earlier that verses 1 and 2 are a statement of faith for Moses, and they focus effectively on the Lord's eternality. But now in contrast, verses 7 through 11 also function as a statement of faith. Not of the Lord's, not of the Lord, the Lord's foreverness, his eternality, but instead of our fragile, sin-riddled humanity. And here, Moses, reflecting on it, he simply states it as sheer fact, doesn't he? Doesn't debate it. Sheer fact. It's not to suggest Moses is either, either okay with it or making friends with it. Quite the opposite. These two truths, God's foreverness, our fleetingness, note what they compel Moses to do. Does he just lift up his hands and resign himself to this is the way it is? What, is, what does it propel, compel him to do? It compels him to pray. It compels him to pray. And this brings us to our third and final point. Because dwelling on God's foreverness and our fleetingness, Moses now appeals to the Lord for the only thing that's going to give him and us lasting hope. And that is his favor. Look at the Psalms final section, verses 12 through 17. And there are more than a few petitions Moses is making to the Lord. There are two in particular that I want us to focus on. The first is his prayer for pity. In verse 13. I didn't mean to close my Bible. I'm going to have to quickly access that. Psalm 90, verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And not merely to note, have pity on us, but to do something about it, about our sad state. What is it that he writes? Satisfy us in, with your steadfast love. Make us glad in him. Moses knows that that is our only hope. That the only proper and sane response to God's returning us to dust, in verse 3, plead. It's to plead for the Lord to return his favor and mercy to us, as he says in verse 13. And while Moses rightly recognizes life's hardships in the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus, there awaits for those who look to him for forgiveness in life, Something that makes this life, here and now, as his disciples, worth living. And that includes every single person in this room. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 4.17, says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Yes, our earthly years may end like a sigh. Think about in mid-May, three prominent Presbyterian ministers died within a week, right? Tim Keller, Harry Reeder, lesser-known guy, Stephen Smallman. You probably have, I'm guessing, one or two of, of, of his books in the library. They all died within a week of one another. Their years ended with a sigh. But oh, what awaits those who are his children and find their satisfaction in him alone, looking to him for forgiveness, favor, and mercy. What awaits them, what awaits us, what awaits all of God's children is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Dear sisters, dear brothers, may this truth put wind in our sails when we suffer life's blows. When we all feel the sigh of life. The whimper of life's end that T.S. Elias wrote about that we know, nonetheless, is not the end of the story. Along with God's work, enduring through his favor and foreverness, Moses also asks, though, for something unexpected. And that is that our work would endure. Look with me at the very last verse. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, I can say much here about the value of work, take a deeper dive into theology of work or doctrine of vocation, but Moses is simply putting his finger on something that we all yearn for, don't we? Don't you want your work to matter? Whatever it is, no matter how seemingly menial or magnificent or mundane, whether you get paid for it or not, and if so, how much or how little, whether anyone recognizes it publicly or appreciates it, whether it will endure in this life or not. You want it to matter, don't you? Don't you yearn for things that will last? Don't you want the work of your hands to last amid our cancel culture? Moses' plea to establish the work of our hands may seem, on the one, uh, on, on, at first glance, unspiritual. But stretching back to the creation account of Genesis, when the Lord gave work for Adam to do in tending the garden. The Apostle Paul would reframe the importance of work, more specifically work done unto the Lord in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where he writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In that little phrase that Paul writes, in the Lord, makes all the difference. And it should greatly encourage us. 
The Lord has an interest in our entire selves, not just the spiritual, not just the, the material or the emotional, the physical, but also the physical, the material, the stuff we create with our minds to the tending and crafting that we do with our hands. May this truth encourage you right now. No work, no work done unto the Lord is too small. None. And so we can pray with Moses. Whatever our task or our lot in life, yes, establish the work of our hands. Yes, do it, Lord. Remind me that my labor, my work in you is not in vain. Dear friends, T.S. Eliot and cancel culture, they don't have the last word. Yes, in this world, you will have trouble. And we all feel the whimper. But may we all, dwelling on God's foreverness and our fleetingness, look to the Lord along with Moses and the nation of Israel and find his favor. A favor found through the works of the hands of Jesus who lived and suffered and died so that we might have life, eternal life, in him. The one who said, behold, I am making all things new, whose spirit, his regenerating spirit, is also working in us to live and work for him as his agents of grace and renewal in a world desperate for lasting meaning. Jesus, the forever one in whom is found, as the old hymn says, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, and who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Dear church, as we conclude, Psalm 90 has at least three brief, important, and practical reminders. First, our God is from everlasting to everlasting. He transcends time. He is not bound by time. He is Lord over time. So we can trust and depend upon him here and now. Second, our lives are painfully short and often filled with frailty, even futility and frustration. But in him, the work that we do is never in vain. So roll up your sleeves individually and as a church and figure out the work that you're to do and do it. Looking to the Lord to prosper your work as he sees fit. Do the work that is before you, leaving the results in his hands. And finally, while our lives are over, a flash 
In Christ, we share in his resurrection for eternity. That's what awaits us. It's what awaits you here and now. And may that future reality of the resurrection shape you right now. Even as we trudge through life's many up and downs, joys, sorrows, may we dwell in and through it all on the wonder and the joy, the hope of Jesus's and our resurrection. This is a reality that awaits us. And as we do so, may it motivate you not to be passive bystanders, just waiting, waiting for it to happen. But instead, may it motivate us to be active agents in his mission to go into all the world, proclaiming his gospel of love, of grace, of beauty, truth, forgiveness, and mercy to a ruined and restless world. Let's conclude in prayer. Father, we confess that you alone are God. There is no other. You who are eternal, unchanging, and holy are also full of compassion and mercy. Oh, how we feel the heaving sighs of the world, suffering losses and crosses. And we all, every single one of us, without exception, deserve it. And yet we thank you that we're not left without hope. That in Christ we receive complete forgiveness for our sins. And we await a resurrection. But also his favor. And so we plead this afternoon, would you satisfy us with your steadfast love and mercy? Would you look upon us with your favor? And right now, would you empower this congregation to do the work that they have to do unto you, knowing that you value it and see it as good. Would you comfort them with these truths? Comfort them with your everlasting mercy and love. Comfort them with you. For we ask in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever and ever and ever, world without end.